The day has come to identify new opportunities where you can have independent, informed, and objective financial guidance customized to you with clear and transparent advice that is solely in your best interest. Your host, KT Thomas, is the Director of Portfolio Services and Lead Wealth Advisor at New Day Solutions, a firm offering expertise in retirement planning, estate planning, investment management, insurance planning, tax strategies, and employee benefits. With more than 25 years of experience, she is joined by Tammy Simons, Director of Advice Services and Wealth Advisor with more than 10 years of experience. New Day Solutions has a highly credentialed team with three advisors holding their CFPs, two of them holding their SEMA certificates. New Day Solutions is a female-run boutique firm dedicated to high net worth individuals, families, and business owners. At New Day Solutions, we work with you to have a coordinated approach for your comprehensive investment goals and your financial planning goals. New Day Solutions is a fee-only practice, providing concierge service for all generations from a team who can see things from your side of the table. Their only objective is to make the best possible financial decisions with you. Fair and transparent financial advice from New Day Solutions. It's time to refresh your thinking when it comes to choosing a firm to serve as your trusted investment partner. Reach out to Katie and Tammy today for a free consultation or go to NewDaySolutions.com for more information. Working with your investments, retirement, insurance, estate, or tax planning, or just dealing with everyday expenses, your money matters. Let KT Thomas help you make the most of it. This is KT's Money Matters. Hi, and welcome back. This is KT Thomas with KT's Money Matters, bringing you tips and quips about how to make the most out of your money and figure out what it is that you're trying to do financially today, tomorrow, and over your lifetime. You know, the Money Matters community has come back with lots of different kinds of topics that they're interested in. And I try really hard to pull people in that I know, experts in the field, people that really will talk to you without trying to like, I don't know, maybe sell you something that you may or may not need and would answer questions for us about different areas where we make big financial decisions and sometimes don't always get the guidance we're looking for. We usually just get kind of the sales cycle. Now, frankly, I think this happens in financial transactions all the time. Things like financing cars or financing mortgages or buying cars or buying houses or major purchases where by the time you're looking for some advice and information, you're also in the process of trying to close some financial transaction. And that means that a lot of times you don't always have time to sort of slow down and really understand what you're asking before you actually already own it. So Jay Healy, Blue Water Mortgage here in New Hampshire, although I know that Jay does business all over the place. We'll talk about that in a minute. Jay has been a mortgage broker that we've used here at New Day Solutions for, I don't know, Jay, what's it been? 10 years, maybe? Probably close. Yep. And, and part of the reason, you know, I always say, people say to me, well, how do you decide who you're going to work with? 
And so as a fully fee-only financial advisory firm, one of the things we do at New Day Solution is we actually don't accept commissions, kickbacks, trade-offs, anything from any any vendor that we use that helps our clients. And so what I always say to everybody is, I need excellent, excellent service. I need good competitive rates. They need to be able to get a great rate with you, but they need better service from you than they'd get from somebody else. And if they get that, then I am happy to refer. And refer we do because we love Blue Water Mortgage. They do a really good job at making sure our clients get what they need and understand what they get. So Jay, thanks for joining us today. It's great to be here, KT. Thank you very, very much for the invite. And it's been a great uh, relationship that we've enjoyed as well. And I'm, I'm grateful for that relationship. So tell me a little bit about your story. How did you decide to get into the mortgage business? So yeah, I started in commercial lending in 1998. I sort of always had a feeling I wanted to be in lending. I was you know, fascinated by the industry and I got my beak wet, if you will, in the commercial field. But I did find that you know, business to business lacked some of the sort of personal interaction that I was interested in. I, you know, we obviously all want to make money in our lives and have a, you know, accessible career, but you know, that success is defined by really enjoying what you're doing as well. And I learned for me that, uh, you know, selling business to business was not nearly as satisfying as working with clients, you know, people that are making the biggest investment of their lives and really helping them get through the hurdles, making them feel comfortable, educating them. That's really the biggest value that I get. I'm one of the owners of the company here. We've been in business 17 years, but I'm still frontline sitting down with the most experienced clients, the first time buyers, because for me, that's still the number one thrill I get from this job is being able to help people through the process and sort of seeing that look of relief on their face when they when they get through it or when they when they realize, well, this isn't as intimidating as I thought. And that is really what pointed me in the direction of the mortgage side of things is the business to person versus business to business. Nice. And so the mortgage industry has changed a lot since the financial correction. I mean, I, I'm sure people have noticed that I can remember and I used to do uh, commercial lending in a credit union. And I can remember that, you know, everybody with a pick and shovel had was a contractor, you know, 1997. And then the market sort of washed out a little bit. And then the next thing you know is the boom through the early 2000s when anybody could borrow anything at any time at the absolute best rate. And people were refinancing all the time. And it just seemed like there was just plenty of money and no credit standard. And then of course, you know, all those parties come to an end. And this one ended abruptly in 2007. So for people that haven't gotten a mortgage or haven't really thought about their mortgage, can you just educate people a little bit about some of the basics? I mean, let's just start with the idea of fixed rate or adjustable. Given today's climate and the way people buy and sell homes, what do you typically recommend to people and why? Yeah, great question. So, you know, it's been a really strange last really call it 14 years in historically in the industry because of course rates have generally been very, very low. We've certainly seen that vary from low being three and a quarter percent on a 30 year fix to five and a quarter percent, but even five and a quarter percent over the last 50 years is considered really low, right? So, you know, the adjustable rate mortgages, and they may come back into play in the coming years here, because I do believe we're going to start to see rates creep up. They already have done so a little bit. The adjustable rate mortgage benefit was that you could get that rate lower than a fixed rate product. And so when rates were at 8% 
And we know that rates do cycle every four to five years. Someone who was a little more financially savvy, if you will, someone who stayed on top of their finances, we would talk to them certainly about adjustable rate mortgages where it was fixed for you know, an initial five-year period, seven-year period, where they knew at some point they might have some you know, financial change in their life. They might, get a, they might be due a large bonus. They might be looking to move from the property. And so they wanted to take advantage of those lower rates. So quite frankly, really in 2002, 2003, we did quite a few adjustable rate mortgages. And then as rates plummeted, it became less attractive. And, and the lenders actually wouldn't offer as low a rate or a discount on those adjustable rate mortgages because they were already giving money away so cheap that they weren't trying to incentivize people to even get lower. So at one for a long time, a good 10 years, if you had a 30-year fix, for example, at 4%, the seven-year arm might only be at 3.75. And that difference wasn't really enough for people to take that chance. Whereas when we see rates go back up into the eights at some point, an adjustable rate mortgage might be at six and a half. And that spread then does create a little bit of a, a demand for borrowers who, who know what their plans are. You know, we, we try not to suggest something like that to someone who knew in the market, you know, first time buyer, because of course, if you get stuck in that home and rates go the other direction, we don't want to put them in a position to fail. Yeah, it can become pretty expensive, right? Even in a traditional adjustable rate mortgage, if you stay there after the mortgage gets to be variable, it can change. Is it one percentage point or two percentage point every year to a cap of five points or six points? Yeah, really annually, it's 2%. So if you have a start rate of five and in year six rates are up there, you're going to 7%. And then the next year could go to 9%. And it could never exceed 10% because it's got a 5% max beyond the start rate. But yeah, you could see how it could get out of hand pretty quickly. So you really, for an adjustable rate mortgage conversation, it's someone who really has plans to do something with that mortgage, i.e. pay off the mortgage might be nearing retirement and they just needed to bridge that gap for the last five or seven years. Or someone who says, you know, this is a stopover home. I'm expecting a, a job relocation or something like that. And, you know, that, that's when it might come into play. Yeah. So at some point, if rates are higher, banks will actually incent you to consider taking the risk. But right now, banks are yeah. just not rewarding risk takers. So it doesn't even matter. At this point, you basically want to get the best long-term rate that you can get. But one of the products that I think is really interesting that's become more available in the last couple of years is this idea of a 10-year fix to a one-year arm which I think hits that middle road a little bit. Can you talk about that? Sure can. Yeah, it is. And, you know, the data says that the average person only keeps their mortgage for about seven years. So whether that be through the, the rates cycling and someone refinancing or someone moving every seven years, it's very, very concrete data that most loans do turn over in, in somewhere around a seven-year period. So having that 10-year option that may offer a lower rate initially has become something that's become more prevalent. And again, as rates rise and we start to see that spread between the fixed rates and the adjustable rates widen, I think we'll start seeing a lot more people trying to take advantage. So one of the things is the trick is to my listeners is you've got to know what's going on with interest rates. And then the other piece is you really have to think about, is this the forever home? Is this the for now home? Do I imagine that I'll be in a position financially where I might want to pay this off in an escalated base? Or is this like my first home? And if it's my first home, frankly, what you really want is something 
consistent that you can plan around. Because there are a lot of things that change when you become a homeowner versus when you rent. And so the mortgage isn't the only thing that you just pay. Yeah. And, you know, especially with your clients, KT, that's often what I will do is tell them their, their options, but then refer them back to you and say, you know, talk to KT about, because you've got, you've got a larger picture of their scenario. You're, you're handling sort of all sides of their portfolio. So, you know, I can give them the ideas, but really it's a go back to KT, talk about the, how this fits in with the plans you've discussed all along, you know, with what, what you plan for the future. And that's where your expertise a lot of times comes in. So let's talk a little bit about first-time home buyers because I always think that they have the most questions. And so there's an FHA program for first-time home buyers, and then there are VA loans, and then there are conventional regular type loans. Can you just kind of break it down a little bit as what first-time home buyers might want to be thinking about? Yeah, sure. Well, first and foremost, the first-time home buyers, that's really one of my favorite type of clients to work with. Just they come in often so overwhelmed or really concerned about their situation when you can walk them through the process, help them understand it. It's really gratifying. And we're fortunate as a company here, we have several loans that meet what the typical first time buyer is looking for. And that is young buyers with today's student loan costs, everything like that. It's how do we get in with not needing a lot of money, right? So that opens up the menu of programs as you mentioned, FHA certainly one. It is not a first-time buyer program, but it is one that is often used by first-time buyers. That's a 3.5% down program. VA, you mentioned, again, not a first-time buyer program, but one that is used by veterans for first time because that is a zero-down program. There is the USDA loan, which is the rural housing loan, which you know, isn't going to work in places like Boston or in downtown Portsmouth or, or areas like that. But certainly in between areas, we've, you know, we've seen all kinds of other counties in Mass and New Hampshire and Maine that meet USDA requirements. That's a zero down program as well. And now Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac have both come out with sort of competing programs to those, the Fannie Mae Home Ready program and the Freddie Mac Home Possible program. Those are 3% down programs that have reduced PMI costs. And one of them actually comes with a grant that allows you to use it as part of your down payment. So I think generally speaking, the powers that be are realizing that, you know, first time buyers are a real key cog in the housing economy and they're opening up some avenues that help. So, you know, when I would say a lot of first time buyers, they sit on that sideline and, and say, well, I'm waiting for this and I'm waiting for that. It's really, I think, essential, especially in this really crazy competitive market that we're in right now, to almost have that conversation with someone like Blue Water Mortgage up front before you even, you know, start looking at homes online, like where do I stand and what's available to me? Because some people don't think they're in a position where they can do something and we actually can find a solution for them and vice versa. Some people think, oh, I'll be fine. And then they they run into some roadblocks through some of the underwriting criteria or what have you. So there are definitely some great opportunities out there for first-time buyers. And I think top to bottom, everyone realizes that it's, it's those first-time buyers that are going to continue to drive you know, the health of the housing market. And we're seeing you know, the products available to, that mirror that. So I'm going to ask you a little bit about, uh, you know, I always call it liar's poker, the no-doc loans. So they were very big in the early 2000s where people could just put a lot of money down and not have to disclose their income 
or prove that they had their income. But those, you know, self-employed people love this, right? Because, you know, they're always trying to hide their money because they don't want to pay any more taxes than they have to. But then they get to a bank and the bank goes, hey, you know, you don't make enough income to qualify for this loan. And you're like, yeah, but I make all this other money, but it's not really blah, blah, blah. And so the no doc loan business became enormous. And then of course, what the banks found out is these people actually were really lying and they didn't have any money. So now tell me what's gone the other way. What happens today for people without income documentation as they think about getting mortgages? Are they DOA or is there a way for them to get a loan? Yeah, so you're absolutely right. That that program initially had great intent. And I think if the industry had stayed along the course of, you know, you need 20% down, you need to have 12 months reserves, you need to have a 740 credit score, and we'll turn a blind eye to the income side, right? And ultimately, someone with that kind of profile was low risk and we probably would have been just fine. But then of course, everyone gets greedy, right? right. So it becomes now a 700 credit score, 10% down, six months reserves. Then it became 680, 5% down, no reserves. And that's where you started to see the trouble begin. So, so you mean the housing collapse was your fault? <laughs> <laughs> I'd like to say I'd like to say that I'm still in business because we guided people better than that. Excellent. We certainly saw, saw a lot of people. I saw a couple of myself go down in flames. I hear you. <laughs> uh, because they got shut down by the banking industry, and I think uh, we kind of did things the right way. I like to think so. Yeah, but that's that's certainly the uh, that's certainly the view of many is it was the mortgage people's fault. So. I'm only kidding. Um, you know, greed is one of those things where if you weren't feeling greedy about it, you wouldn't have taken the loan in the first place. Yes. Right. You got it. So, yeah. And of course you have to have, everybody has to participate in order for it to be as bad as it right. got. That's right. You're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. So once that no doc option went away, it left a real hole in lending because remember 10 years leading up to that, business owners were planning on going with a no-doc loan, right? So they would do their taxes accordingly, uh, where they would take all the deductions they could, try to show as little income as possible to pay the IRS less money. And then they said, you know what, that's okay. If I have to pay a half point higher on my interest rate because I go no-doc, it's worth it because of the money I'm saving with the IRS. Well, that got shut off just overnight. Yes. And now all of a sudden you had all these business owners who you know, the standard criteria for the self-employed is two years history of taxes. Well, we would get these people come to us and now their taxes don't show anything. So there were extreme cases where you would get someone going back to amend their two years prior taxes, paying the $70,000 to the IRS in taxes just so they could qualify to buy the home. And so it really left, uh, it left quite a gap in, you know, what was, well, I should say it left a uh, void of probably 20% of the buyers out there because they no longer qualified. And so it was those two year period where everyone started readjusting their, their filing plans so that they knew they would be in a position when the time came to, uh, to get a mortgage. And so once that happened, then people started claiming their income. And remember, you know, the government runs Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, they run the IRS. So they basically said, look, if you're not going to pay here, we're going to get you here and vice versa. And actually, it's, you know, it seems kind of fair. You know, it really is. I mean, <laughs> I mean I'm mean, i self-employed. I don't like to pay any more than anybody else, but here's what I'll say yeah. to you. It, the idea that they could just, especially because the government was on the hook for these loans and they were writing all these no-doc loans to people that weren't paying any taxes. And then of course they weren't paying their loans either. You know, as a taxpayer, that was kind of, that kind of bothered me a little bit. 
Yeah, and I think it did a lot. And the funny part, you mentioned how it's sort of everyone has to have a you know a finger in the pie for this greed in the right. you know the greedy pie. The government, of course, at the same time was pressing the matter because they wanted to be able to say you know the dream of home ownership, right? And so let's make it available to more and more people. And and so you know the loosening starts at the top. It trickles down to the banks. It trickles trickles down to the brokers. It trickles down to the borrowers. And so it really was a you know just really a mess. If it had stayed the course, I think there is a place for a no income verification loan where, you know, the certain circumstances make sense, but I think it, it really needs to be based on only the strongest of profiles. You know, that, like I said, the high credit score, money in reserve, uh, low debt to income ratios, and where, you know, the corporate returns are filed a certain way where it doesn't work in the favor of the borrower, we could find a home for those people. But right now, it's very much the standard two-year history of taxes, and what, you know, depending on the structure of the business, that's what you're going off of. And so I think everyone's gotten the message because it's rare now that I do have someone coming to me that says I'm self-employed and they're not showing enough. Right. They've all figured out that that no longer is available to them until the next time. Yeah, for sure. So, you know, yeah, I always exactly. say that, you know, you know how the, there's that famous saying, those who fail to learn from history are doomed to repeat it. And, um, you know, I remember the savings and loan and then, of course, this financial debacle. And, you know, I'll probably be alive the next time it happens because it does. It's that greed, fear, slope, and you're on one side of the continuum or the other. And people tend to go back and forth as things are really good. They tend to think they can take more and more risk and they value safety less and less. And then all of a sudden they find themselves out on the cliff when the stones break away. And they're like, how did that happen? And it's like, well, the same way it happened 30 years ago and the same way it'll happen probably 30 years from now. But let's talk a little bit about uh, what it takes today. So credit scores... I find this amazing. People are paying for their credit scores. They're paying for credit monitoring. This thing has gone like nuts. This is a huge business, Jay, where people pay mm -hmm. a lot of money to monitor their monitor something that they could monitor for free, and they all think yep. they're supposed to know their credit score off the top of their head. So my thought about credit worthiness was always 725 or better, you're okay. Under 725, you need work. Is that still fair or has that changed? It's fair. Uh, you know, it's, it's program-based, KT. So you have on the conventional mortgage side of things, which is your Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac umbrella, it's done in buckets. So 740 plus is your, your top category, 720, 39 to 720, 719 to 7, 699, 680, so on and so forth. Now, if you got into one of those USDA loans that we've talked about or a VA or an FHA, those are often all the same no matter where you are. FHA, for example, is better than 580, wow. uh, which is a little scary, but helpful for those who've gone through a legitimate life crisis, right? We, we do see those events, right? So 580 to 620 is one rate bucket, 620 to 660 is the next rate bucket, and then anyone over 660 is getting the very best FHA rate. So a little bit different than the conventional, and VA works similarly. So, so 724, though, you know, 720 plus really... Yeah, you're getting into where you're going to get, you're going to get a very good rate. You're going to get a low PMI factor if you're someone who's putting in less than twenty percent down. You have to pay mortgage insurance, but seven forty still is a is a that's a a category that will get you into the very tip top. So that's the good number. So for those of us who are who are by the way bragging and garnering our eight something credit scores, <laughs> it actually is not really helpful. We just needed to be over seven forty. Is that what you're saying? I get that a lot. Yeah. And so, yes, that's true. And, you know, wow. the reason why those buckets. Listeners, are something to think about. 
Yeah. And, and the reason that bucket's created is your credit does move month to month, whether you know it or not, right. right? If you went out and put a new, you know, bike on your credit card and it was, you know, $1,200. bike. Gus's bike shop, were you? How yeah, did you know well, that? I know that you're the triathlete, so I'm trying to associate <laughs> it with you. So, you know, $1,200 swing in your credit card might affect your score six or seven points initially. Of course, you pay it off the next month and you go right back. But the reason those buckets are created is because they want to, you know, there should be a little bit of wiggle room for the monthly changes that people experience. So if you're listening, 740 is the new 725. That's where you really want to be in order to ensure that you're able to get access to the best programs. Now, obviously, you still have to be able to afford the mortgage, right? So um, do you guide people about how much mortgage, you know, the difference, I always say the difference between mortgage and renting is, you know, renting is all in a mortgage is just the beginning. And so how do you coach people about how much mortgage they can really afford? What is, what's, what is kind of the thought in the industry today? Yeah, that's like, that's one of the biggest things we do. So everything's based on debt to income ratios. You know, how much money do you have going out every month in bills versus how much do you have coming in with income? Now, what's a little scary, and we do, we do explain this to people, is when we qualify a borrower, it's done on their gross income. So, you know, and it's also done where, let's say you have a credit card balance of $5,000 and the minimum payment's only $50 a month. That's what we use in the qualifying. So what, what happens a lot of times is we'll qualify someone for a mortgage and they actually can afford more than they want and quite frankly, more than they should take. So what I usually do with a borrower, if they, if they don't have a target property in mind, is I go through the process of helping them figure out what their maximum would be in terms of a price. But then I show them the monthly payment associated with that. And so it's connecting those two dots that you'll typically see sort of the light bulb go off with people. And they say, oh yeah, $400,000 house. I love this house. But when I run the numbers and show them the payment with taxes and insurance and it's $3,000, they gasp, right? And so you say, all right, well, listen, the bank is telling you, the industry is telling you, you can afford you know, a $3,000 a month payment. But based on your gasp and our conversations prior, you want to be at $2,200 a month then we need to reset the expectation that you should be looking for properties at 300,000, not at 400,000. You know, it's funny because I have a conversation with clients that's a little bit more, let's just say, flat right out on the table. I say, they assume you're going to pay the minimum on your credit cards for the rest of your life. Yeah. They also tell you on your mortgage, on your credit card statement that if you do that, it'll take 37 years to pay it off. So I need to know, is actually that part of the plan? The other thing is, it's, you know, I always say, where would you like to vacation? So, I mean, you know, for those of you who maybe don't, don't realize, you know, Jay and I are down here near Hampton Beach. And I always say, do you want, you know, are you doing every vacation on Hampton Beach? Or did you ever decide that you might go somewhere else? Because if you buy a house that costs more than you can really actually afford and have like a life, then guess what? you're eating beach pizza for the next 10 years. So you really have to decide what else you want to have happen. It's not how big of a house you can buy. It's how big of a house can you buy and still have all the things in your life that you actually want. And um, I think that people just get caught up in the big number. And then of course, you know, there's the realtor that's always willing to show you the $400,000 house when you tell them your budget's 350. Because they say, oh, they can, you, we can talk them down. I bet we can negotiate this, which by the way, like never happens like you guys think. So my next rule is if you don't want to spend more than 350, never look at anything more than 350 for the first 30 days. 
because once you see a 400, you're never going to love a 350 ever again. Yep. One of the things I say to clients a lot is when you see a property of interest, before you even go drive by it, you know, say online or something, send me the address. I will show you the numbers. And that way you can make the decision with your head before you go make it with your heart. Because I promise right. you, when you make a heart decision, you're going to pay, you're going to be willing to spend more than if you look at the numbers first and say, okay, we're That's right. Discipline. This is more than we can handle. And if I can defend my industry a little bit, KT, based on your earlier Go joke, for it. Uh, I, you know, one of the things the whole no doc thing did was people just came in and said, I want this house. Well, we'll put you in a no doc and away you go. I like to think that we did it the right way and we would stop and say, you know what? We could get you a loan, but here's your payment. Here's what you're laying out for, for loans every month, for utilities, all this. This leaves you X amount of dollars. Can you live with that? And quite often they would then stop and say, oh gosh, I got to get, get my reality in check here. So, Well, Jay, that's why we sent you our clients. You, you don't have to I defend the yes. industry. You can just defend yourself. <laughs> the heck with them. But you know, really, I, what I find is that there are two kinds of people in the sales slash service financial business those who actually look at you and, and want to give you advice that will help you and those that want to get you in a product and get you out the door. And so yeah. it's not that the people that, that are willing to give you advice don't want to get you in a product. It's that they're not willing to just put you into anything in order to get paid and get you out the door. They want to try to help you find the thing that really fits. So here's what I say about shopping for a mortgage broker. One of the things that I think people don't understand, Jay, is how are you guys paid? Because that's the question I always get. They don't even know how you guys are paid. They're worried that they're missing it somewhere. Can you explain how you get compensated? Absolutely. And that's a question we get a lot too. And it's a good question because you should know. And actually the federal government now requires that we disclose it all in, in the paperwork that we deal with. So it's actually very good. Just like realtors, you know, they'll, they'll write into the, the contract that they're going to get their 3% or whatever it is. So this is a very regulated thing now since the mortgage crisis. So what happens as a broker is we work with 12 different lenders, let's say, and we have a contract with each of those lenders and we make 2% on any loan amount that we deliver to one of these lenders. So we will facilitate the entire transaction start to finish. What happens is when the loan closes, the servicing rights are transferred to the big you know, the big bank, U.S. Bank and Trust, uh, Wells Fargo, you know, whoever it is. We actually, Wells, we don't use anymore. But um, so what happens is they pay us 2% of that loan amount for delivering an interest-bearing customer for the next, you know, 10, 15, 20, 25 years, however long they have the mortgage. So our services are not paid until the day we close the loan. And those are paid by the lender to Blue Water Mortgage. Great. So guys, somebody's going to get paid. And so yep. what you need to know is you can pick a mortgage broker that actually will work for you. There's not like this slick guy that maybe the realtor knows that is going to do any better than another mortgage broker. The trick is to find somebody that you really like, that you trust, that will, that does business with enough banks to find you a really great rate and term. And you don't have to worry because you're actually not writing that check. Yeah, you just nailed it. I think that's the biggest benefit. So a lot of people say, well, you know, if they're paying you 2%, it has to be built in somewhere. But as your clients experience, it's very rare, quite frankly, that I lose a deal because we can't get someone one of the best rates. Remember, the likes of U.S. Bank and Trust, 
they don't have to pay someone's salary to sit there and have a conversation with clients and run them through the process and do all the legwork. That's what they pay us to do. If they didn't pay us and they had to staff someone in New Hampshire to do it, they would have to open up a branch. They'd have to staff that branch. They'd have to pay the salaries. And guess what? Their rates would be, would be higher because they have to account for that. I've actually had scenarios where people have gone to back when we used to work with bank of America 10 years ago, before they melted down, I used, I knew the rep at bank of America and he'd say, Jay, how is it that you're moving bank of America money at a cheaper cost than I can to my own clients? And the reason was because they didn't have to pay me salaries. They didn't have to pay mortgages on their, on their branches. They didn't have to pay all the overhead. They just let me do all the work and they pay us the 2% and it's up to us blue water to manage our costs internally. And you know, it's funny because people don't really realize that when they quote, go to the bank, that a lot of times they're actually not even talking to the bank. They're talking to a mortgage company branded yeah. in the name of the bank that does exactly what you do and is a separate legal entity from the bank. We have a couple of those relationships. Yep, absolutely. You call a bank branch and the 800 number comes here. Yep. Yeah. And so. Yeah. And the brokerage model is great because like you said, I have 12 lenders we work with and I don't get paid any differently by any of them. So I want the best rate and the best closing cost package I can find for the client. And 95% of the time we can find that. So I'm always trying to spread it around. So let's talk about the people with the really, really big mortgages and the change in the tax law in 2018, both about whether or not that's affecting the high end side of the market and how you're coaching uh, clients to think about the deductibility or lack of deductibility. And then also, um, I believe there was a change about the home equity line of credit too on people that had a more substantial first mortgage. Yeah, so obviously somewhat new to the picture. And and so we haven't seen a great deal of uh, too many scenarios yet where we've even really had to offer the the coaching or advice, if you will. the, I think the rule you're talking about with the equity line is that that second mortgage equity line is no longer a deductible item. Is that what you're referring to? Sure was. Yeah. Yeah. The interest there. So, you know, we've certainly seen some people convert if they were in a refinancing fashion. Uh, you know, if they had a hundred thousand outstanding on an equity line and 400,000 on their first mortgage, and if the rates and, and payments made sense, converting their equity line money to their, to their mortgage and taking out a single loan so that moving forward, they can take advantage of interest. We've probably had that happen a couple of times, but not a great deal just because rates have been on a rise somewhat. Uh, in the jumbo market though, I will say there used to be, I'm going to go off track with you for a second, but it'll bring us back to our point. So you've heard the term jumbo, right? And that is any sure. loan that, that, it, that it exceeds the Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, insurance level. So Fannie and Freddie are there to insure mortgages for banks, meaning if they are willing to take the client on, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac will insure the mortgage. And if there's ever a default, they eat some of the loss and the bank eats a partial loss instead of 100%. Now, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac will only do that to certain loan amounts. In, in, in New Hampshire, uh, it's 453.1. But in Rockingham and Stratford County, which are considered higher balance areas, they'll do it up to 598. And then once you get over 598 in those counties, you're in the jumbo category. Whereas in all the other counties, it's once you're over 453.1. Now we used to see a really sharp increase in rates when you went from the conforming limit 
to the jumbo limit. So let's talk 10 years ago, if rates were at 4% for a loan amount in the conventional loan limit, you might, you would, you would get that 4%. If you went to a dollar over that limit, you, you might've been jumping as high as 4.75. So a three quarter spread between the, the conforming loan limit and the jumbo. That curve has changed dramatically. There are lenders out there now who are doing these jumbo loans at a million dollars, million two, million three. And we're actually in some cases getting a lower jumbo rate than what's available right now for the Fannie Mae 30 year fixed. And that category of lending has changed quite a bit. So they figured out that people that make a lot of money tend to pay their mortgage? And should be rewarded for it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, that was a conversation we had. So, like, yeah, like you said, people would say, gee, I have, you know, I have a million dollars in the bank. I'm putting, you know, 30% down. I have 800 credit scores. And just because I'm borrowing more. And the reason was, was that, you know, the banks didn't have the security of Fannie Mae insuring them. But I think the banks have sort of, I guess, come to their senses on that a little bit. And it's one of the areas that we've seen a real drastic improvement, which is great for us in our market, obviously, with, you know, the seacoast of New Hampshire down into the Boston area, because, you know, the housing prices are crazy. Tremendous. Yeah, they're really yeah. high. Yep, absolutely. So let me ask you this one last question. What sure. would be your best point of advice in today's rising interest rates? For people that are looking for homes, should they go now and get it done because rates are rising and they want to try to get ahead of that curve? Or do you think that rising interest rates might actually slow down housing prices and that might be better off to wait? You could always refinance, but you can't refinance purchase price. Right. I would say nationally, the latter makes sense, but we're in such a unique market, KT, right? Between say, you know, Southern Maine, Rockingham, Stratford County, New Hampshire, and then the Boston area where it's such a hot button market right now in terms of new businesses starting. It's, you know, there's, a, there's obviously a lot of technology jobs, everything that I feel like the demand for housing out here is not going to slow down anytime soon. So, you know, us all waiting around for housing prices to drop could be a longer wait than, than we expect. Now, will they start, will they stop skyrocketing? I, I'm sure they will, right? But my goal, I think if, if it were me and I were in the market, I'd be saying to myself, I got to get in while rates are, are where they are because it just gives you more buying power, right? You know, you can afford a lot more home at four and a half than you can at six and a half. So for me, if the rates are going up, but the market coming down is going to lag, I think that's going to be a few years in between where you have a lot of people that are going to not be able to afford a $500,000 house at six and a half, but they could have afforded it at four and a half, if that makes any sense. Okay. But nationally, if you're talking about inland, you know, where, you know, if you're talking, I've got a friend that lives in North Carolina and in Western Carolina, and he said, you know, the housing market's just been completely flat. And if it's flat right now, there's only one place for it to go, and that's down, right? So and it, it, for those people, it would be a different conversation than in our pocket up here, which, you know, we're fortunate. It's somewhat insulated from a lot of the, you know, the, the market movement we see nationwide. But my bet would be if you're thinking of buying something in the next three years, you, you know, you really probably want to try to take advantage of the, of the money being cheaper right now because that we all know that's going away. So some tip, if you're thinking about buying a house and you're not sure now or in the next couple of years, you know, to Jay's point, you might want to take advantage of the fact that rates are a little bit lower now. And uh, clearly, I mean, I don't know, the Federal Reserve is telling us every single day how rates are going up. So 
I mean, maybe rates are going down, but you, you know, if you call that, you're probably the only one out there that saw that coming because everybody else thinks they're going up. The other thing is renting has become increasingly more expensive as more and more millennials are renting longer, are making good money, want a good place to live, and are paying more rent for that. And at some point in time, you have to wonder if it's time to, to switch over and maybe think about buying. The other thing is a first-time home buyer. There are some great programs out there that lets you buy with significantly less down payment than, say, that 20%. And there are, you know, there are always trade-offs, things like private mortgage insurance and things like that. But if your credit score is really good and your income is good, you may be in a position to buy now, even though you maybe don't think so. So if people want more information about mortgages and they'd like to reach you or the people that work with you directly, Jay, how might they reach you? Sure. Uh, so our website is uh, bluewatermtg.com. And the number here at the office is 800-668-9695. And as I said earlier, I'm still frontline. So call and ask for Jay Healy. You'll get one of the owners of the company. And uh, I like to think that, uh, that I'll be able to provide you the information that you're looking for. Perfect. Hey, Jay, we'll make sure that we put your information in our show notes as well. And for our Money Matters listeners, thanks very much for joining us today. And until we talk to you again. Thank you, KT. It was great. Thanks for listening to KT's Money Matters with KT Thomas. For more information, past episodes, and show notes, go to www.ktsmoneymatterspodcast.com. Make sure you subscribe and recommend it at iTunes, Overcast, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.